before I get to Romans chapter 1 and verse 1, I've got a couple things I want to say um, just to prepare the way here by way of introduction. So, first of all, I am getting ready to do something that I have not done in 24 years. I'm covering a topic that I've covered before, but never in 24 years of preaching have I used the Sunday morning time slot to systematically just teach verse by verse through a book of the Bible. And um, I feel the Holy Spirit leading me to do that over the course of the next three months. And I, I also want to address who I'm speaking to, why, why I believe the Lord has led me to do this. I'm, I'm going to be addressing, if, if, you, if I was to define my audience over the next few months, I'm going to be addressing um, those that are new in the faith. We've had something like 10 or 12 folks that have made that public declaration of faith, came forward in response to a sermon, prayed for salvation in just the last three months. And we've got a handful of new believers. We also have a significant group of people that, are, that, that maybe weren't saved in the last three months, but are still somewhat new to Christianity and don't know a lot of the basic tenets of our faith don't know how to study the Bible, struggle with studying the Bible Don't when they open it up, aren't real sure where to start, how to read the Bible. And I, I actually want to address that group of people over the next three months. Now, I promise, if, you, if, you've, if you're a Christian, you've been a Christian for a long time, I promise that I don't, I don't think that you're, I promise that I don't think <laughs> That you're going to sit through and be like, oh, I wish we had something deeper for me. I think this will be helpful for everybody. But I just want to define my target audience is those who are fairly young in their faith, trying to figure out how do I study the Word of God? What are the basic principles of our faith? And one of the things I wanted to do instead of just cherry picking those topics and preaching on those topics, I actually want to do, I guess I want to, by example, I want to show you how to study the Bible. And so we're going to look at the Bible together and we're going to study it together verse by verse. Something that's also very interesting. So I don't know what's coming up with our life groups uh, and what their target is, but after this morning service, I was informed that our life groups are starting a study on Romans. And I think that's interesting sometimes how the Lord does that. I seriously had no clue until right before this service when Kelly came and said, did you know that that's what we were starting with life groups? And I did not. And so my guess is, is that we will be covering the same topic from different angles. And it's actually going to be very helpful for those of you that are part of both. So um, that said, to those of you that fall into that category of like kind of younger in your faith, you don't know how to study the Bible, trying to learn. There are a lot of maybe um, the foundational principles of our faith that you don't really even fully understand. Hear me when I say this, I want to be extra accessible to you over the next three months. If that's you, just know as your pastor, I would love the opportunity to answer your question. You can email me in the church app. If in the sermon notes section, there's a link to email me. You can get with me after service if you want my number to be able to contact me. But I'm going to take the next three months, and we're going to work through Romans. I'll explain why in just a moment. But we're going to work through Romans with an emphasis on laying down the foundations of our faith, 
teaching young people how to study the Word of God and dealing with the major principles of our faith. So, with that said, why the book of Romans? So, it always helps to have a little context when you're studying the Word of God. It helps to have an idea of what we're dealing with. Romans is the largest letter that Paul has wrote. And Paul is a very systematic writer. In other words, there's a system. He starts in one place, he goes to the next, he goes to the next. Almost always in all of the Apostle Paul's writings, about 70% of the way through, he gets to the main point. Then, because he builds up, he's building up to make a point. Then the back 30% is very practical. So what does that mean to how I should live? How should I treat my neighbors? What should my attitude be towards government? What should my attitude be towards my employer? What should my attitude be towards my enemies? He deals with the very practical implications of our faith on the back end of his letters, and he does that with Romans. Because Romans is the largest of his letters, it is the most exhaustive, or it covers the most content. And when we're looking at trying to explain the basics of our faith, I don't know that there's a better New Testament epistle than the book of Romans. And so that's how we've landed and selected Romans. The final thing that I want to say is that, uh, and if you have your Bibles with you, you're probably going to enjoy having them uh, over the next several months. If you have your Bible, go ahead and take a look at it. And understand that each book, we call them books, they are more like letters. Now, I want you to imagine that um, for one reason or another, let's just, say, um, let's just say that for one reason or another, I had to move away. And one of you was a young Christian. And you came to me and you said, Joplin, if you're moving away and I'm not going to be able to hear you preach every Sunday, would you please take the time to write for me the most important things that I need to know about my Christian journey? And I went home and I wrote a letter to you. And it was about 10 or 12 pages of handwritten letter. And I handed that letter to you. It wouldn't make a lot of sense for you to get that letter, randomly go to page 7, half the way down the letter, just start reading. That would not make any sense at all. But that's how most people read the Bible. Because they don't understand it's a collection of letters. And it's a lot easier to understand the letter if you'll actually start and read through. You will find that the Bible isn't really written verse by verse, but it's written in sections. And so I'm going to break down for you chapter 1, which we are about to study. If you have your Bible, you can look at it and look at verses 1 through 15. Verses 1 through 15 is one section. It's a classic section of any letter. It's the introduction. And if you were writing a letter and you were to write an introduction, it would be more than one or two sentences. What it basically says is, hi, I'm Paul. I have some things to say. I'm grateful to write to you. And then he gets started. The next section happens to be two verses. In verses 16 and 17, Paul explains what the whole rest of the book is about. He makes a quick statement that says the whole letter that you're about to read, this is what it's about, and now I'm going to spend the next 16 chapters talking about it. But if there was a theme statement on the whole book of Romans, it's in these two verses. And then the third section, if you look at verses 18 all the way through 32, 
That whole section is one thought. It helps to know that when you're studying. It helps to not just get stuck on one verse, but to read the entire thought. A lot, imagine if you were writing a letter and you wanted to communicate a thought about how, as we're going to see in this section, the third section, you wanted to communicate a thought about God and His relationship to those who don't believe in Him. You wouldn't be able to get it out in one or two sentences. There'd be a handful of things you'd need to say to communicate your point. That is exactly what's happening here. It helps to know that as a new believer. The other thing that's important is if you understand that and you get started, you'll recognize it's really helpful to read two or three chapters at a time instead of just getting stuck on one or two verses. You might come across a verse you don't really understand. Put a pen in it. But don't stop there and kill yourself trying to figure out what's the wording of that mean. Read through until you read that whole section. And a lot of times the section itself will provide clarity on that verse that didn't make a whole lot of sense. Very similar to if I had written you a letter and you're in the middle of a big paragraph and there's one sentence that you're like, what's he talking about? Well, if you just keep reading and see the whole section together, it might provide some clarity on what I was talking about. Knowing that is how the Word of God is written is a very helpful tool when we read it. That said, we're going to start working verse by verse. Let's start in chapter 1 and verse 1. Paul says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. First of all, the word servant. Notice Paul identifies himself as a servant. It's the same word for slave. God's generals are slaves, not celebrities. And folks, we have got that mistaken in this day and time. And Paul, he uses this term about himself a lot, but it would have had a special significance to Rome. Rome had over 60,000 slaves in it in this time. 60,000 people were slaves in Rome. And slaves were considered property. They were not treated as people. They were treated as property. And here we have the great apostle Paul right out the gate saying, I'm a slave. This should be the true heartbeat of God's leaders and spiritual leaders of the church. We are servants. We are slaves. We are not celebrities. And I'm telling you folks, in a lot of ways, we've got that mixed up in this day and culture. He says, I'm a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. I want to stop on verse 4. One of the very first things, the foundations of the Christian faith is that our Lord, our Savior, Jesus Christ, died and rose from the dead. He was declared to be the Son of God or proven to be the Son of God through the resurrection of the dead. It's what separates him from everybody else that ever did live. Jesus' tomb is still empty. It is an undeniable fact. Jesus Christ is the only one who ever rose from the dead. He defeated death, hell, and the grave. And in doing so, he proved to us, it declared to us, that he is exactly who he said that he was. He is the Son of God, and therefore his word can be trusted. Just an interesting side note here. Resurrection from the dead. Every time 
every time that Paul ever uses the word dead, he uses the plural form of it. If we were to translate it literally in English, it would be from the resurrection of the deads, plural. And it is a reference to the reality that Jesus isn't the only one that's going to rise from the dead. He's the first. But there will be a resurrection from the dead for God's sons and daughters. Those who have gone on before us, those who have died before us, they will be resurrected from the dead when the Lord returns. And in Christ, that's where we get our resurrection. So those who are in Him will be resurrected with Him. And Paul never one time ever uses the singular term. He's always reminding us that, that, that there is a resurrection for God's people. Next, through whom, speaking of Jesus, we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name among all nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. I want to look at that phrase in verse 7. To all those in Rome called to be saints. The word saint, what it means is consecrated to God. And if you don't know what the word consecrated means, it, it means to be set apart for the very specific use of one thing. Uh, an example would be in the Old Testament when, they, um, when the temple was created and the instructions were given for the, the utensils that were to be used, the furniture and how it was to be made, once something was made to be used in the temple, it could never be used anywhere else. And so, if there was a basin in the temple, you couldn't just take it out of the temple and run home with it and use it for a bowl of whatever you wanted to eat. It was consecrated for use in the temple, and therefore it could only be used in the temple. Understanding this, we understand where we falsely have elevated the name of saint to those among us who are like, you know, their whole life dedicated to the Lord. In fact, the Catholic Church has a process for where a person becomes a saint. I just want you to see that's not biblical. And according to God, all of us are supposed to be saints. All of us are supposed to be consecrated to God. That means my life does not belong to me. It now belongs to God. And He, he alone has full and complete authority in my life. I was bought with a price. I am not my own. And therefore, I am consecrated to God. Paul says, all of the believers, all of those in Rome who he's writing to here, are called to be consecrated to God. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. I just want to note, Paul is one of the most thankful people. When you look at Paul's letters, he normally starts and concludes with thanksgiving. And here's a guy that, I mean, here's a guy who spent time in prison. Here's a guy who was beaten severely for proclaiming the gospel. There are some that believe on one occasion Paul was beaten so bad that he did actually die 
for a short period of time and then came back to life. Can't prove that, but there are some who actually believe that. In addition to being severely beaten, he was, uh, I think, five times hit with a rod across the back, 39 lashes, one short of 40. He, he, he went through torture after torture after torture. He was falsely accused, falsely imprisoned. And yet, here's a guy that constantly starts off with, I thank God. And one of the things that we see about Paul is that he learned how to be grateful and have a life of gratitude no matter what was going on around him. He's a tremendous example for us in that. And I look at his life and I think, God, I want to have that type of sincere gratitude in my heart for you where nothing that goes on around me can make me negative. Where no matter how bad things get to me or around me or how evil the world is that I live in, God, don't let it steal my joy and don't let it keep thanksgiving from getting out of my mouth, but let me have a sincere heart of gratitude. And Paul is such a good example of that when you consider the life that he lived and you look at how often he was thankful. Verse 9, For God is my witness whom I love with my, who I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you, for I long to see you, that I may impart some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I want to pause there. Two things I want to point out in those verses. Number nine, Paul says, I serve with my spirit. It's an interesting principle about truly serving the Lord. That when we serve the Lord, we do it with our spirit. It's about the inner man, the inner woman. It's about a position of the heart. That serving God is not measured by what we do externally, but serving God is measured by what's really happening in here. It is possible to do a whole lot of things externally and still have it wrong in here. It's possible to not really be serving God, but still serving in the church, still greeting doors, still serving on this committee or that ministry or this thing or that thing, showing up and serving here or there, it's possible to do those things and yet still not really be right with God inside and not be serving the Lord from an honest heart. It's not possible to be serving God with an honest heart and to truly be yielding to the Spirit and not be doing some of those things. But Paul says, when I talk about me serving the Lord, I'm not talking about all the things I do externally. I serve the Lord with my Spirit. And then number two, Notice the statement that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. Paul said, I want to come to you people in Rome that I might encourage you and that you might encourage me. I cannot overstress the principle that I'm about to make here. Especially, right, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to teach young Christians about how to be strong in your faith. Listen to me carefully. If Paul needed mutual encouragement from fellowship with the church at this stage in his journey, you need it at your stage in your journey. Paul didn't say, I long to come to you so that I can teach you something and you can get stronger. He said, I long to come so that I can, in fact, impart wisdom to you, but also that I may be encouraged. And there is this principle 
that spiritual growth requires being connected to the body of Christ. And you cannot, you can, but you shouldn't, you cannot underestimate the importance of Christian fellowship in your spiritual growth. We need each other. There's a sense of accountability that comes when we are connected with other believers. There's also the process that Bible talks of iron sharpening iron. And so you get Christians around other Christians who are like-minded and we begin to talk about the things of God and we can kind of teach each other and challenge each other and we can talk about spiritual things with meaningful talk and, and, and as iron sharpens iron, come to the sharpest conclusion, the most correct conclusion because there's wisdom in the multitude of counselors. We talked about that Wednesday night. And so it's very important that you are connected to believers. You want to grow spiritually, you need to be connected and have fellowship with solid Christians. You want to stay stagnant? You want to cut yourself off at the knees spiritually? Get off alone in your faith and do your own thing. And you'll find that you begin to grow stagnant and that your spiritual strength is weak and you're not making great spiritual decisions. We said, we see it here, Paul said, I need it and if Paul needed it, we need it, folks. Verse 13, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I might reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. That's his introduction. He's going to start teaching here in just a moment. That was his introduction. He finishes with, I'm under obligation to the Greeks and barbarians. This is a reference actually to language, those who speak Greek and those who do not. He says, I'm under obligation to the wise and the foolish. We would not use that term in modern day English, though that is how it is most um, word for word translated correctly here. What he's really saying there is, I am under obligation to the educated and the uneducated. In other words... I'm obligated to everybody to preach the gospel. Not just the educated, not just the uneducated. Not just, you know, those that are uh, people of my language, but those who are not. And so he's like, I've got to preach the gospel. And now he moves into, you know, he's done with his intro. The letter really starts now. In verses 16 and 17, he gives the reason for if there was a theme, a set of verses that defines all of Romans, this is it. He's going to give us the, in, a, in a, a quick statement what this letter is about, and then he's going to start teaching on it. Let's look at it. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. That's what this whole book is about. That's, he says this, this is where we're headed. But who are the righteous? What do we have faith in? What is salvation? All of these things will begin to be explained in a much more thorough way than a, uh, you know, a soundbite. We see the gospel, it's the power of God. 
We're going to be studying the gospel, and we're going to be seeing that it is the power of God. Notice it's for salvation to everyone. So apparently everyone needs saved. That, that little clue right there, we're about to find out. He's going to actually spend the next two to three chapters hammering home. But apparently everybody needs saved. It's salvation for everyone. But this is also a great thing to hear because everyone can be saved. It's not just offered to one group of people. It's not just for the Greeks. It's not just for the barbarians. It's not just for the wise. It's not just for the foolish. The gospel is for everyone. And that is one of the awesome things that we're about to see. It is a righteousness of God that is revealed. And so we recognize that the God that we serve is a righteous God. And we're about to find out that we're unrighteous. So now we got a problem. Can you see how Paul's building an argument here? Can you see how if he was writing a letter to, to Rome, he actually has like a thought process here he's trying to communicate? And so we've got a problem on our hands. God is righteous and we're not. And that's where we pick up in verse 18. And now Paul begins to deal with what we would call the Gentiles, those who do not believe in Jehovah God. He says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So the first thing we learn here is that men, generally speaking, mankind, suppresses the truth. This is how he deals with his unrighteousness. He does not want to deal honestly with who he is and what he has done. And so mankind, rather than deal honestly with who he is and what he has done, mankind suppresses the truth. This word suppress is my favorite word in chapter 1. Because man cannot get rid of the truth. He can only suppress it. And you need to understand something, especially young believers. You need to understand that this is one of the primary ways that the enemy seeks to destroy mankind is by influencing us to suppress the truth. You can't get rid of the truth because the truth is always true, whether you believe it or not. If the whole world believes a lie, it's still a lie. The truth is always the truth. So the job of evil men is to suppress the truth. How do you suppress the truth? Well, one way is by making people afraid to speak it. Put people in prison for speaking the truth. Shame people for speaking the truth. Call them hateful for speaking the truth. And it, when we allow the truth to be suppressed as a society, as a culture, ultimately as young people grow up not really hearing the truth because the truth has been suppressed and they grow up hearing lies, it ends up permeating the whole culture. You have a culture that's just gone astray. Now first of all, note, this was written 2,000 years ago, folks. So this has been the strategy forever. It's not changing. But we can certainly look at our own era of time and see how this same strategy is being used today to suppress the truth. As a young person, as a young follower, you need to understand that. That's one of the ways the enemy is going to try to trip you up and keep you from being fully, completely committed to God is by suppressing truth. He does not, does not want you to know what's true. does not want you to think about what's true. wants to suppress the truth. Let's move on. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Let's pause on that for a moment. For what can be known about God 
it's plain to them. Plain to who? We're talking about sinners here. So we see something that's, a, that, that's got to be acknowledged. 99 out of 100 people who call themselves atheists are liars. Deep in their core being, they know there must be a God. They know. It's literally engrafted into our DNA as creatures of the Creator that we are created beings and that there is a God who is superior to us. And we see that what can be known about God, it's plain even to them. And why? Why do they know about God? Or we might ask, why is God knowable? Because, it says, God has shown it to them. Now here's an awesome truth about God, right? Listen to me, young believers. God has shown it to them. It teaches us something about your God. He is not hiding. He can be knowable because He chooses to make Himself known. He is the one who acted. He is the one who put forth the energy to be known. He is the one who designed the way to be known. And so God can be known. He is knowable because He chooses to be and He reveals Himself to us. That is an awesome fact for the unbeliever. It's like, I, I want to know if God is the one true God. You seek Him with all of your heart and you'll come to the conclusion you will see. He will reveal Himself to you because He is knowable. But as a believer, it teaches me that my God wants me to know Him. He wants me to know Him more. He wants me to understand Him more. He wants me to know His heart more. He wants me to know His mind more. And He is knowable because He chooses to be. And so there's this lifelong journey of knowing my God in a greater capacity. Verse 20. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, and birds, and animals, and creeping things. I want to read the next two verses and pause. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. He says, even those who claim they're not believers or followers of God, they're without excuse because God's invisible attributes, his eternal power, it's all evidenced in creation. But these people, and here's an important word, became Fools became darkened because they refused the Lord. And instead of worshiping the Creator, the obvious Creator, they chose to worship His creatures. They created images of birds and creeping things and 
worship those things. And we see that they're foolish. It teaches us something about man. They became foolish. Here's what it teaches us. Man was not at some point in time a weird fish swimming around in the water who decided to become a land animal that morphed into a, a donkey that became a monkey and now is you. We're not getting wiser. We're not evolving into great wise creatures. Instead, we're getting dumber. We were God's prized creation. We were, at one point, perfect. And of all of the creatures there were, we were God's prized creation. And since that time, we have not got wiser. Instead, we have got more foolish, and we have become more like beasts than we were when we were created. And God says, therefore, therefore, because of that, I gave them up. You're going to see that three times. God says, I gave them up. It teaches us something about God. God will not force you to follow him. But notice that when God gave them up, notice, it was like when things were really bad. It wasn't on the front end. It wasn't like, well, they made a mistake, so God gave them up. It wasn't like, well, they, they got pulled into sin, so God gave them up. No, they consciously, deliberately made a choice to turn against the obvious God, their obvious creator. They chose to worship creation. They chose again and again and again and again to reject God. And at some point, there was a line when God said, fine, have what you want. And God gave them up to their own debased minds. Verse 26 for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men. And receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. It's impossible here to deny that this is not dealing with homosexuality. It's also impossible to not see that in the great conclusion of how wicked men have become, that this was one of the things God points out as like as bad as it gets. It's awful. Women with women, men with men. God uses the word shameless acts. Now I know that we live in a culture where that has become so accepted that it's hard to even say what I'm saying right now. And the truth is suppressed. And we lie. We call lust love. It's not. We make excuses for people to remain in their sin. Understand, homosexuality is a shameless act. It's not natural. Women with women, men with men. It's just not natural. It's contrary to science. It's contrary to nature as a whole. And God says, this is one of the things that has happened 
when mankind has been allowed to just go after his own passions, his own evil desires, this is what ultimately comes, is, is the height of sexual impurity. And what's wild is in our particular era of time, it's crossed into whole new thresholds that I don't even want to discuss this morning that seem to take some of this stuff on another level. Verse 28, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. Look at those words. What ought not be done. There are things that ought not be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness. And now he just lists a big list of things that pretty much encompass all sin. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. First of all, I want to hone in on the word practice. Very important word here. It means to literally do something intentionally, repeatedly, over and over and over again with the intention of getting better at it. That's what it means to practice something. This is not saying that those who ever have a, 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 you know, a, a, a sinful tendency are those whom we know deserve to die. This isn't, in fact, all of us with a flesh nature, we have a sinful tendency. We're about to find that out when we turn the page to chapter 2. But this is saying those who practice these things, those who shamelessly are evil and practice wickedness and celebrate wickedness, they deserve to die. This is a truth that matters. This is a truth that, it's like we have a hard time being honest about this because the truth has been suppressed in the Christian faith. Paul mentioned the gospel, and Paul mentioned that, you know, that it's the power of God. The gospel literally means good news. But you don't really understand the good news until you first understand the bad news. Why do we even need atonement if there's nothing that needs atoned for? What do we need saved from until we understand we are enemies of God? And our sins have caused us to be guilty before God. And the penalty of that is death. We're heading that direction. We're about to find out someone else was willing to pay that death for us. The Lord Jesus Christ. But Paul right now is building the argument that even those who don't consider themselves God-fearing followers of Christ even those people, they're without excuse. They know what they do is wrong. They worship the creation rather than the creator. They have allowed themselves to go after the most, after the most wicked and ruthless of ways and commit shameless acts. And even they know, and we know, that that type of stuff is deserving of death. Yet, not only do they do it, they celebrate it. They celebrate it and they honor those who practice it and they give approval to it. Chapter 2. Paul now switches from the Gentile world to 
the church, to the religious. When we turn the page, you can almost, you could almost hear the audience cheering Paul on. You're right. Absolutely. The world's full of heathens. They're all wicked. They're sinners against God. They deserve to die for their wicked crimes against God. Paul then turns the page and takes them by surprise. And basically says, oh, you thought you were different? Actually, it's almost worse for you. Because you know more than they do. I've demonstrated that they know and that they're without excuse. But you're even more without excuse. Because you know more than they do. And you still do the same things they do. That's what he he pivots to now in chapter 2. Let's look at it together. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man. Every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. Because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impotent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Boy, that's a strong statement. Paul says, so you judge, you pass judgment on everyone else, but you do the same thing yourself. And he says, do you presume? Do you presume? Are you being presumptuous? Are you assuming that because God is good and he's been good to you, that somehow that's going to keep you from his wrath? You know, the argument is basically this. There are people out there that think to themselves, well, if God's been good to me, and God's been good to my family, so there's no way that, you know, that I'm not going to heaven. What does that have to do with whether or not you go to heaven or not? The fact that God's been gracious to you. He says, not knowing. In my Bible, I have it underlined. Not knowing. You need to know this. You need to know this, that the kindness of God was meant to lead you to repentance. It wasn't meant to deceive you into thinking that you're going to heaven because God's been good. And I've seen people do that. I've seen people that God actually did a miracle for and changed their life, but they weren't saved. Brother Kevin Wilkes was one of them. Brother Kevin Wilkes was a drunk who went, I don't think ever more than seven days in 10 years span, more, more than seven ever. Normally drank from the time he got up to the time he went to bed, drunk by lunchtime. I mean, he was, he was the absolute epitome of a drunk. And uh, I don't have time to tell his whole, whole testimony, but one night he was passed out drunk, and his sister came over with some friends uh, and prayed over him, and he woke up the next morning and has never, ever drank another drink of alcohol, no tremors, no desire for it, no taste for it. God absolutely delivered him. Now, that man probably never could have been saved in his drunken stupor. God did him a great favor in miraculously releasing him of that alcoholic hold in his life. Guess what? 
that don't make anybody saved. And the church just kind of decided, well, he must be a Christian now because God miraculously sobered him up. No, the kindness of God there was meant to lead to repentance. And he wasn't told that, and he wasn't taught that, and the church didn't teach that, and he went on thinking he was saved for a very long time. So don't think that just because God's been good to you and just because God's did a miracle in your life, that that in and of itself is the proof that you're right with him. And that was the attitude of a lot of these people, especially the Jewish people here now that he's kind of addressing that were born and raised in the, uh, the, you know, the, 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 the Jehovah-following families. They're like, well, God's been good to my family. I'm part of the group. I was raised in church. I was this. I was that. But hold on a second. Did that ever lead to repentance in your life? Because you sit here and preach against all the, the sins of the wickedness out there in the world while it's going on in your own home. And what makes you think you're going to escape the wrath of God? Instead, we see the exact opposite. He says, you're storing up for yourself wrath. That's what you're doing. You're storing it up. I can't think of anything that is more horrible than storing up, saving, getting more of the wrath of God for you when you face God. What a horrible thing to be storing up for yourself is the wrath of God. This is what you're storing up this morning if you are not living an honest life following the Lord Jesus Christ and you are just a hypocrite, still in your sins, living in your sins, practicing your, your life as a sinner. And if you know better, you're actually one of the few that actually know what this thing says. If you know better and you're still persisting in your sins, it's worse off for you than this first group. You're storing up for yourself wrath that will be revealed when God's righteous judgment comes. Next, He will render to each one according to His works. To those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor immortality, He will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking, and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness. There will be wrath and fury. There will be, there will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. The Jew first, and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. The Jew first, and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. We're going to stop there uh, for today, and I want to comment on these last set of verses. First of all, New Testament Christianity, New Covenant, the era of grace, and we still see that God will render to each one according to his works. You have to square with this statement. No matter what you believe about grace, no matter what you believe about forgiveness, you have to square with this statement because it is, it is said so clear. It is said so pointedly that God will render each one according to his works. Those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory, the glory of God, and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. So here's what we understand about those who get eternal life, those who are given eternal life. We've, we have to keep working, right? This is another reason that it's important to read the whole letter. You can't just stop on one verse. We'll find more clarity on this section as we read. But just so that nobody goes home confused, 
I'm going to give you a little bit of clarity about this statement. It teaches us that true belief equals works. That's what it teaches us. And because of that, your faith can be tested. Your faith can be proven. And God will, will judge us according to the actions that follow what we say we believe with our mouth. Because anybody can say they believe. Millions do. And then they walk straight out the church doors and go continue to sin and blame God for it. They'll say, is anybody perfect? They'll start deflecting sin, right? I know I'm a sinner, but are you not? All of a sudden, they're deflecting, they're deflecting, they're deflecting. Why? Well, they want to suppress the truth, number one. But God's still going to judge that, what I would call, fake belief. For sake of time, I didn't deal with it, but when you, when you actually go back to, to chapter 1 and you look at the, um, the word believes in verse 16, to everyone who believes, that word belief is a powerful word in the Greek. It, it, it does not mean simple mental assent to something. Like, eh, I believe the sky's blue. It means a core belief that is so A core belief that builds convictions. A core belief that because I believe it, it alters the way that I live. That's what the the word actually means. And so when the Bible talks about believing, you might correctly say that to be saved, you must believe in Jesus. But you better correctly understand what believe means. It means a belief that is so real, so solid, that it produces a conviction in your heart that changes the way you live. And if it hasn't done that, You don't believe, sir. That's the type of believing that leads to salvation. And because that type of believing is is what leads to salvation, it is followed by works. And because of that, God can rightly look at our works and judge us accordingly. But those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey in righteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Finally, I want to point out, and I'll ask our worship team if you guys to get in place. Finally, I want to point out, this is now, I think, the third time we've read the statement, the Jew first and also the Greek. The Jew first and also the Greek. On one spot it tells us the Jew first and also the Greek can be saved. But then it tells us who's going to be judged, the Jew first and also the Greek. The reason for that is because the Word of God was given to the Jew first. They knew. Their ancestors are where literally it came from. They were the descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. They're the descendants of those who came through with Moses and the descendants of the lawgiver. And because they were spoken to first and they were revealed truth first, God says, you're going to be dealt with first. But the point is not that one is superior to the other. The point is that all of us answer the same. Jew, Greek, everything in between, whatever, however you want to word it. All of us answer to God the same way. 
We're all guilty before God, which is the ultimate conclusion next week. And all of us need saved the same way. And God's provided the same solution for all of us. This morning, I just want to close with a couple of thoughts to, to my new believers. Young in the faith, learning how to study the Word of God, learning how to walk this out. I want to encourage you over the next several weeks to just read ahead one or two chapters at a time so that you know where we're going. And then I'm going to give you an example of like how we work through that, how we walk through that. I think you would have found it helpful before you showed up if you would have read Romans chapter 1 and Romans chapter 2 this morning and then walked through it with us. And so next week, read chapter 2, read chapter 3. Stay tuned. One of the things that happens in a letter is we start with the problem. Next week, we begin seeing the solution. And so week one, you showed up, and this morning I just talked about the problem. The world's full of sinners. The church in and of itself can't save itself, and most of the religious are just guilty like everybody else. We all have a problem, and that's what Paul's trying to make the point of here. We all need saved. Every one of us. Next week we start to look at, so what's God's answer to that? Is it to destroy us all because we're sinners? Is it to just let us all be destroyed and spend forever in hell? Does God have a solution? He does. And as Paul already gave us a clue in verse 16, the solution is His Son, Jesus Christ. 